electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. A high noon deadline. The UAW prepares to expand its strike tomorrow. Will it be enough to force the hand of the automakers? Will bad news for the big three be good news for Tesla? Wedbush's Dan Ives and GLJ's Gordon Johnson are here for a debate royale. Lights, camera, maybe action. Hollywood could be near a breakthrough in its months-long standoff. MGM largely returns to normal after a crippling cyber attack, but the pain for the casinos may just be starting. Plus a washout for the IPO comeback. Even some of Wall Street's biggest players are now getting squeezed. And a twist fit for a season finale. Rupert Murdoch hands over the reins of his media empire. What comes next? That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Well, let's kick off tonight with a sell-off across the board. Major markets posting a sea of red. The Dow dropped 370 points today. It's off by more than a percent. The S&P 500 slid more than 1.6 percent, notching its worst day in six months. And as you can see, the big loser, the Nasdaq, down now about 5 percent from its recent highs or 1.8 percent on the day. Stands to reason here, since the so-called Magnificent Seven, are not really performing magnificently. Amazon plunged more than 4%, its worst day since February. Even this year's Wall Street darling, NVIDIA, under pressure, dropped nearly 3%. Tesla and Alphabet, not far behind. Not even a blockbuster $28 billion tech deal could shake the bears. So what's behind this September slump? Simple. Rates. They're rising, rising fast. How high they could go, what could this mean for the year-end rally that many predicted? Let's talk about it with our A-list panel. Veritas Financial Managing Partner and one of the biggest bears on Wall Street, Greg Branch, and Hightower Chief Investment Strategist Stephanie Link. Thank you both for joining me here at Last Call. Greg, thanks for being here in studio. Got to ask you first, is there something truly momentous lurking below the surface here, or is this just a seasonal blip? I think so, Contessa. I mean, we, we've all heard the phrase higher for longer consistently now. Uh, the problem is, is that the market has consistently underestimated how high and how long, and it's still not there yet. Let's take the first vector, how high. You recall that about a year ago, uh, my terminal rate was forecast at about 6%, and at the time that that was very highly scrutinized. Here we are 75 basis points away from that, with the Fed indicating at least another 25. And so a year ago, when we were looking at 3% rates or 4% rates, uh, we were talking about a pivot. We were talking about the Fed being done. We were talking about it being enough. And so the market was consistently wrong there. And then lastly, Fed funds futures predicted rate cuts in 2023 for most of the beginning of this year. Now the conversation shifted to 2024, and now the dot plots reveal probably not four, but two 
But the market's been consistently wrong about this, and it's still wrong, I think. I mean, we saw a lot of exuberance this summer. There was a, a lot of um, joyfulness when we were looking at the rally. Is this just, Steph, do you think, um, a big September meh, let's time to take some profit off the table? Or are there, is there some really, are we looking at fear? Look at the VIX today, up 15%. Should we be seeing even higher gains on this fear gauge on Wall Street? Well, Contessa, September tends to be very volatile in general, right? And this year is no different. Every year it's something different to be worried about. The market loves to climb a wall of worry, as you very well know. And the fact that we are we were up as much as 17 percent in the S&P 500 at one point this year and up 30 percent in the Nasdaq, it's easy to get nervous and take profits. Um, the This year, it's about the Fed and it's about higher rates that you talked about. It's also about the potential for a government shutdown, which I don't think is going to happen. But on the Fed, I think you have to step back. And why are rates higher for longer? Rates are higher for longer because economic growth is actually stronger than expected. And that is what is keeping inflation elevated. We've made a lot of progress on inflation. We've gone from 9.1% last year in the CPI to 3.7%. We still have a lot, long way to go to get to 2%, which is where the Fed wants it to go. But it's staying high because the economy is running right now. The Atlanta Fed tracker for GDP for this quarter, 4.9%. We're not going to end the quarter at 4.9%. But even if it's 3 to 4%, that's above trend. And that's actually not a bad thing, right? And it's led by the consumer. It's led by jobs. I mean, look at those initial claims that we got today. The four-week moving average at 216,000 jobs, initial jobless claims. In, uh, in recessions, that number tends to be something closer to 350,000. Uh, so we're well away ways from a recession, number one. The consumer remains healthy because they've got jobs and higher wages. Manufacturing is benefiting, not all manufacturing because it's pockets, but manufacturing is working because of the $2 trillion in infrastructure stimulus that we put into the economy. And anything tied to onshoring or anything tied to aviation is on fire. So all of this added together is good for the, the economy, good for earnings, and good for at least a little bit more of a broadening of the marketplace and not the magnificent seven leading the way. That's but, not healthy, having seven stocks lead the way. So and, I'm encouraged by what I see. And Katessa, I agree with most of what Stephanie said. Uh, the problem is, is while it's good for the economy, some of this is really bad for the Fed and puts them in a bind. And so, for example, the Fed has consistently told us in order to get to their target, they need to get to about a 4.4% unemployment rate. Well, not only do we remain at a historically low unemployment rate, but as Stephanie pointed out, an eight-month low in jobless benefits claims is the wrong direction. Let, let's talk about where there's opportunity. If we're seeing some uh, market dips right now, Stephanie, what are you buying right now? What would you suggest? So um, I have been overweight kind of kind of the more cyclical companies, uh, cyclical sectors because the economy and right that 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 will help their earnings and earnings power, energy, industrials, uh, financials, capital markets, I think are very interesting. People hate the banks. I think there's a play there. I think those stocks, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, really cheap. Um, some consumer, Contessa, not all consumer. Um, I, I like TJX. I like the off-pricers. I like Target because it's down and out and it almost yields 4%. Mm. Um, I like the casinos. You know I like Las Vegas Sands. It's not been great as of late, but I think Macau is recovering, and that's an awfully attractive stock. Yeah, if you look at Las Vegas Sands, it's down. I had just um, looked at this right before I came on. Las Vegas Sands down 16.4% uh, month to date, so it's 
it's slumped, and that may be for some people an opportunity. Greg, what about you? Where are you seeing opportunity heading into the second half of the month? So I think that, that the next few months looks a lot like what we saw in August, September, October of last year, meaning we're going to see breadth, and it already has started to narrow fairly considerably. Uh, recall that when we had the equity summer of euphoria, <laughs> breadth expanded quite a bit. And it's, it's interesting because the bond market, once again, has been telling us something very different than the equity market. But as breadth narrows, I think investor focus will go where it's safe. It will go to things that have uh, tangible, tangible secular tailwinds, expanding margins, uh, growth, uh, relative earnings growth in a period where we won't see a lot of that. So sectors that will have that are cybersecurity. And yes, we are seeing terms change and we're seeing the buyers ask for term changes. But that is a lot more sanguine than than what we're seeing. We have a lot places. more to come on cybersecurity later this hour on Last Call, because, as you know, with the casinos, uh, there was a big exposure there. The insurers are being exposed. There's more to dive into on cyber. Greg, thank you, Stephanie. Nice to see you. Thank you both. Good to see you. My pleasure. And you can see more delivering Alpha Investor Summit September 28th in New York City. That's where we'll convene investors and leaders for insights, ideas, analysis to help you balance risk with maximized returns. Scan the QR code or visit cnbcevents.com slash delivering alpha. Meantime, let's get to the studs and duds for today. Biggest winner of the day, FedEx gained 4.5% after earnings topped expectations. Biggest loser, Boston Properties down 7% as REITs got slammed as rates move higher. Let's also take a look at futures now and see how things are shaking up. Looks like, uh, well, we've got nothing on the S&P 500 right now. Dow Jones just barely hanging on to the green. Not enough to matter. NASDAQ saying, what is going on with futures? This is crazy, right? All right. Up next, the countdown to high noon. The UAW prepares to expand its strike tomorrow. Will automakers withstand the hit? Former Ford CEO Mark Fields joins us. Speaking of strikes, Hollywood may be on the cusp of a major breakthrough to end its standoff. Those developments ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. It's time for tomorrow's news tonight, the stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, some bad news for Sam Bankman-Fried. A U.S. appeals court has upheld a judge's decision to keep the FTX founder in jail while he awaits trial. The court said there was probable cause to believe that Sam Bankman-Fried tried to tamper with witnesses ahead of his October 3rd trial. 
And what's sure to be another big story tomorrow, of course, the UAW strike. The union says it will expand its walkouts to more U.S. auto plants if serious progress isn't made by noon tomorrow. The targeted strikes are already affecting three plants in Missouri, Michigan and Ohio, sending more than 12,000 workers to the picket lines. The clock is ticking. There hasn't been any word of substantial progress from either side. Joining me now for more is former Ford CEO, CNBC contributor Mark Fields. Uh, thank you for being here on Last Call, Mark. I'm just curious, when, when you hear substantial progress has to be made, that's really open to interpretation. What would you expect that to mean? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the fact that you mentioned, Contessa, that there really hasn't been uh, kind of much news out of either the UAW or the automakers of what's gone on this week, that may be a positive sign. Uh, you know, I think the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, I think his original strategy was, you know, strike first and negotiate second, uh, because maybe he felt he needed to, you know, get some blood so he could, uh, you know, restore members' faith in the union that had gone through a, a big corruption uh, scandal. So, you know, it can mean a lot of different things, but, you know, you have to you have to believe that they're both all the automakers and the UAW are spending a lot of time at the negotiating table right now, probably focusing on the wages, but also just as importantly, those non-wage demands, which are which are very onerous in terms of the demands from the well, UAW. Strategically right now, if you're after a deal, do you think it's important that Fain starts to moderate a bit? Well, listen, he's had a very different communication strategy. You know, when he became UAW uh, president, he basically threw out all the old uh, uh, guard that was part of the communications group at the UAW. And he brought in uh, some uh, some folks from some other unions that were quite more aggressive. So I wouldn't expect him to kind of change his uh, his communication strategy at this point. Importantly, the automakers, if you notice, Contessa, this week, they've started to, to get more aggressive in their communication, which is the right thing to do to say, hey, listen, these manufacturing workers, they're the, the, the best paid amongst any manufacturing companies, particularly in the plants and the communities that they're at. And when you add up all their benefits, you know, it's $125,000, $150,000 an employee. So they're starting to push back as well. But I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, they're at the negotiating table and, and talking turkey right now. Do you have a prediction for how long this goes on? Well, it's going to come down to how hard, in my view, the UAW wants to push on these non-wage demands. I mean, things like defined, restoring defined uh, pension benefits and, uh, you know, shorter work week and retiree health care. Those are kind of busting, if you will, the, the balance sheets and would add billions of dollars yeah. to the cost structure of the automakers. And they just cannot afford that because they have to compete with the non-union imports and Tesla. I, I'm, I'm wondering if you're looking at this from sort of a 30,000 foot view. It's not just the auto industry. You've got thousands of healthcare workers in San Diego voting to authorize a strike. 40,000 Vegas hospitality workers, casino workers, are going to take a vote next week whether to authorize a strike. Uh, you've got the, the actors and the writers striking right now. Do you think CEOs are generally, is corporate America overplaying its hands? Well, I think it's not so much, I think, corporate America overplaying their hands. I think it's the unions basically saying, hey, listen, there's momentum here. Uh, if you look at, you know, as, as you mentioned, if you look at the UPS deal with the Teamsters or the airline pilots union with the airlines, 
uh, or even some of the agricultural uh, manufacturers and the, the unions, the, the deals that they got, they are very hefty gains. And I think, you know, workers, particularly in these unions, are saying, hey, we have some momentum. We have some other unions that have gotten some very, very big gains. Now it's our time because, number one, let's take advantage of that momentum. And number two, we as our union have to be, you know, we have to prove that we can deliver for our members. I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's probably a lot of families across the nation that are waiting with bated breath to see if there's some progress before that noon deadline tomorrow. Mark, great to talk to you. Thank you. Still ahead, let's make a deal. Those Hollywood lights may be coming back sooner than thought. Plus, there will be no cliffhanger. Rupert Murdoch steps down from his media empire. What comes next could be fit for a succession reboot. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back from one strike to another. Hollywood's Writers Guild reportedly in final negotiations to end its strike following a face-to-face meeting yesterday. CNBC media and technology reporter Julia Borson joins us tonight with more. Julia, what are you learning? Well, I've heard it was another day of productive meetings between the two sides. After another day of productive talks yesterday, this is the first optimism I'm hearing about a potential resolution being near. The first optimism really since the strike began back on May 2nd. Now, key to driving this progress yesterday and today is the presence of CEOs of the AMPTP member companies, Bob Iger, Ted Sarandos, David Zaslav, and Donna Langley. Now, media stocks did finish the day mostly higher on this news. The exception, Netflix, it was down about half a percent. It has outperformed the other media giants since the beginning of the strike, and it has been less impacted by the strike than its rival companies. But the impact of the strike does extend far beyond the media giants and the writers and the actors who are also on strike. The Milken Institute estimating the cost of the Hollywood shutdown is nearly nearing $6 billion nationwide. And now both sides are pushing for a compromise on three key issues. First, minimum staffing requirements for TV shows. Second, bonuses or residuals to writers for the success of streaming shows. And third, AI protections for writers. So there is a lot of talk about these, a lot of optimism about these talks being productive, but it could take a beat for the WGA to fully evaluate the AMPTP's latest proposals and to get consensus among the people who weren't in the room. So we shouldn't take any lack of an announcement today as indicating anything negative. Then after the two sides do come to an agreement, it takes about two weeks for the WGA to take the agreement to a vote and officially ratify it. Many are hoping that a deal between the WGA and the AMPTP will serve as a template for the Screen Actors Guild to come to a quick 
resolution of their concerns and to come to a deal as well, um, because, of course, they still haven't gotten to the negotiating table yet, Contessa. Well, well so uh, for the actors, then what comes next? Well, what comes next is, that, you know, we could see the AMPTP start to negotiate simultaneously with the Actors Guild, or they could wait until they have a deal with the WGA and then use that, bring it to the Screen Actors Guild and say, hey, this could serve as, as guidelines, as potential outline for how we could approach a compromise. Of course, there are some different issues. You know, minimum staffing requirements on TV shows is not relevant um, to, to the Screen Actors Guild. But some of these issues, whether it's AI or, or compensation for streaming success, could be helpful for coming to a deal with the actors as well. Julia, thank you for bringing us that reporting. Staying on the subject of media, maybe you know this song. Well, that's the theme song for the hit HBO show, Succession, all about the infighting for power between one family that controls one of America's biggest media empires. Yeah, we're seeing a real-life succession unfold with the family that that show was inspired by. Fox and News Corp chairman Rupert Murdoch announcing uh, that he's stepping down from his role at both companies effective this November. He'll be replaced by his son, Lachlan Murdoch, who currently is co-chair of both Fox and News Corp. Murdoch's media empire owns a number of major brands, including Fox News and The Wall Street Journal. Investors cheering that news with shares of Fox ending the day up about 3% and News Corp getting more than 1%. What does it mean for the future of Fox and the Murdoch empire? Joining me now is founding partner and senior correspondent at uh, Puck, Dylan Byers, and Wall Street Journal media reporter Joe Flint. Joe, you broke the news this morning. Give me a sense of how momentous this is for all of the media companies that Rupert Murdoch reigned over. Well, I think there's two simultaneous stories here. First, thanks for having me on. Uh, obviously, Rupert Murdoch stepping back, and I use that word, not retiring, because that word does not show up in the press release or in his letter to staff, but stepping back from his uh, chair roles at both companies and leaving the boards. But you know, for seven decades, this man has had an incredible influence on news, media, entertainment, politics, uh, for better or for worse, often often criticized and creating a polarizing programming for some. But always a newsmaker and a very ambitious, driven personality who built an empire. And now his son, Lachlan, his eldest son, will totally assume control of that empire. He's already uh, been in charge of Fox Corp for quite a while. He's on the board of News Corp, but he faces his own challenges. It's a much different world than the one his father ran and became such a powerful figure in. And so we're all going to be watching how Lachlan navigates the next few years, the streaming wars, whether he will try again to put Fox Corp and News Corp, which is the parent of the Wall Street Journal, back together again, and just sort of what hands he will play versus how his father managed for so many years. Joe, from your reporting, do you have any sense that the, that Lachlan has been chastened at all by the headwinds that Fox has faced, the the Dominion lawsuit, the loss of their biggest primetime star, Tucker Carlson, or the ouster of, of Tucker Carlson, I should say, and now being sued by pension funds over basically a failure to return to shareholders what they should have. Do, do you get the sense that the Fox that we see in the future, News Corp that we see in the future, might be different under Lachlan's control? 
Well, if if you're referring to Fox News, I will say uh, Lachlan has been nothing but a big believer and supporter of the leadership and uh, strategy at, at Fox News. So I'm not sure I necessarily see that changing, but you're correct. There's a number of challenges, not only at the channel for you know, losing Tucker Carlson and his huge audience, but it's a very competitive landscape. And they've got a big lawsuit still out there regarding the election with Smartmatic that mm-hmm. is hanging over them. And as you mentioned, some of those pension suits. Dylan, let me turn to you. Uh, when you're parsing out the influence that Fox has over the nation and its politics and, and the power of its messaging, how do you see this playing out without Rupert, Rupert taking a day in um, control over, over this company? Well, I think there it's first of all important to reiterate something that Joe said, which is that um, on, on the one hand, this is succession and it does feel sort of momentous in that regard and, and the end of a, of, a, of a seven decade long era. On the other hand, this is sort of formalizing something that has been in place for some time now with uh, Rupert and Lachlan working hand in hand. And Rupert, by no means, as long as as long as he's living and breathing, is is going to not be involved in what happens at Fox. I, I think what's happening here is that you're having you're asserting Lachlan as the sole CEO and chairman to effectively get the market and the street comfortable with that idea, to get everyone comfortable with that idea, because and it's a story for another time, but because there's sort of a lot at stake for Fox and what happens after Rupert dies. And so, look, I think in terms of the, the the way that this business changes or the way that anything changes with Lachlan, I think that you, you sort of preserve the status quo as best you can with a portfolio of assets that are all subject to major headwinds, whether you're talking about the linear television business, which is yet to articulate a sort of sound streaming strategy, or you're talking, of course, about the newspaper business, which Rupert Murdoch loved, but I think we all know that newspapers are not the future. So, so, look, I I think there are a lot of headwinds ahead. What do you think, uh, what happens to the other siblings who got left out of this? Well, this is the big question, and and I sort of think that the working theory that everyone has is that when, when the inevitable day comes, when Rupert passes, that, and, and you've got uh, four siblings, Lachlan, James, um, Liz and Prudence, and they sort of each have an equal say in what happens to the company, that maybe uh, they could somehow overthrow Lachlan and do something else with the company, either change the nature of Fox News's editorial banner, go ahead and sell the assets that, that the Murdochs are still holding on to. I, you know, look, I don't know. I think that's a ways away. Uh, but again, I, I do think that part of the decision this week to formally announce Lachlan as the sole CEO is a way of sort of getting ahead of that and basically getting the street and even perhaps some of the siblings more comfortable with the idea of Lachlan as CEO and making it harder for them to uh, to sort of engage in such a mutiny. Dylan Beyer, Joe Flint, thank you gentlemen for joining me tonight. Appreciate that. Still ahead, MGM finally getting back to some semblance of normality after crushing cyber attack. But look, it's a huge problem for the casino industry and it may just be getting started. I'll tell you why. Don't go away. Welcome back. It's been nearly two weeks since the cyber attack that 
led to MGM Resorts and the big disruption in its operations. Its website was down. It affected everything from room keys, check-in, slot machines, much more. MGM now says, hey, things are back to normal, although some users online are still reporting difficulties with booking rooms and other features. MGM stock, meanwhile, has taken a big hit since the hack, down about 15% month to date. Not just MGM, other big Las Vegas casino names, Caesars, which had its own cyber problems. Wynn, Las Vegas Sands, Bally's, all seeing big declines since the hack, too. It comes as risk solutions firm Guy Carpenter is out with a note saying, Ransomware wins big in Vegas, noting that cyber experts predict the casino industry will be the target of more attempts and that cybersecurity insurance for them will be more expensive and harder to find. What does it mean for these companies moving forward? Joining me now, Jeffrey's Gaming, Lodging and Leisure Analyst and Managing Director David Katz. You kind of went out in front of the pack and you tried to extrapolate some financial impact to MGM. What is it? We, we, we did. Um, when, when the event happened, uh, we did a little legwork. We made some phone calls. We talked with the company to get their take on it. And look, our first guess at it was, our first pass at it was, you know, 10 or 20 percent of their volumes might get hit. Um, and I think there's been some, frankly, some press extrapolation of that that have come up with some math that's really a little too high. And I think the important thing is they're going to get hit. Uh, it is getting progressively better, as you point out. Uh, it's not all the way there. You cannot still book a room on their website. Uh, their corporate email was down as still down as a few as a few days ago. But the fact is, there are still conventions and things going on out there and, and business is happening. Um, but there's going to be some impact. So let me be clear. I my according to my reporting, MGM has cyber insurance that will kick in. We don't know to what extent. In other words, we don't know what their deductible is. We don't know what the coinsurance is. But there should be layers of cybersecurity insurance that not only uh, pay for the damage or the rebuilding of the technology that was needed, but also business disruption that would kick in as well. So how much of an impact this actually comes back to the bottom line of MGM to be determined? What about the brand damage? What about the fact that people say, uh, no, never mind, I didn't like the way that they handled that. And, and presumably there are thousands of guests who dealt with the disruption. Is that anything that you're factoring into your calculations? I, I think, I, I'm glad you asked the question. Um, we have heard some, by the way, unconfirmed reports about the magnitude of their insurance, you know, up in the couple of hundred million dollar range with very low deductibles. But that's all unconfirmed, as I said. I, I do think most investors that we talk to um, and, you know, my experience in covering my stocks is that th this is a disruptive and painful event long term does not impact value. And it's part and parcel of being in the consumer business. It today. is it is somewhat like a modern day casino heist. And in fact, the way in was not through a hack. It was that they got to a third party IT vendor and coaxed a human being into letting them in and get into the system. We saw something similar this summer with multiple casinos getting taken for a ride when somebody who worked in what they call the bank, basically, you know, the back of the cashier's office, got fooled, got duped into paying out cash to these criminals. But what I've been told by cyber experts is that it's a herd mentality by cyber criminals. Once it works, and it worked, Caesars paid $15 million in ransom, 
MGM has had weeks of this trying to get back to normal, that it's going to make not only those two companies, but other casinos the target of repeated attacks. How problematic is that for the industry? Look, I think what, what has to happen here, and I think you, the, the way you describe it is accurate, uh, that there are uh, security vendors, right? And, you know, they are going to have to keep evolving and getting better and getting sharper along the way uh, because they have some culpability in all of this, right? And it, it is fair to say that MGM may have to pay a little more in the short term. One more, briefly. Travel stocks are down generally. There's some question about the leisure um, audience tapering off a little bit. Can business travel take over where leisure is pulling back? We, we, we do favor Las Vegas compared to a number of the other areas of our coverage because of the recovery of conventions that are going on. Uh, I have colleagues out at a grocery convention this week. I'll be out at the big gaming show in a yeah. couple of weeks, as I've seen you out there. For yeah, sure. I'll be there, too. Sports events. That calendar continues to roll on through the Super Bowl next year. David, great to see you. I'll you see you well. again in Las Vegas for Indeed. Global Gaming Expo. Coming up, Wall Street pinned its hopes on an IPO comeback. But is the party over already? Kate Kelly of The New York Times joins us with the Insider Buzz. Welcome back. Let's get to an IPO edition of our Last Call watch list because it continues to be a brutal stretch for a few widely followed names, starting with chip designer Arm. During trading today, the shares dipped below their IPO price of 51 bucks. The stock rebounded above 51, but it's down 18% over the last week. And then there's Instacart. It closed today just 65 cents above its IPO price of $30 a share, and that's way down from its opening trade of 42 bucks. And then there's Clavio, the marketing automation company that started trading yesterday, still modestly above its IPO price of $30, but it's lost significant steam from its opening trade of $36.75. Let's bring in New York Times reporter Kate Kelly. She's also a CNBC contributor. And I understand, Kate, you have some new reporting on this topic. What's the buzz from the bankers behind some of these deals? Well, it won't surprise you to hear Contessa that they're cautiously optimistic because, after all, they're always putting deals together and they're always hoping for a turnaround. I mean, it's against an interesting backdrop, right, because I was talking with Jay Ritter, the uh, University of Florida researcher who has spent decades studying IPOs, and he said he thinks we're coming off of a period of sort of zeal in the market with a come down that is actually worse than after the crash of 87 and worse than it was after the tech bust in 2000 in terms of like the impact on volume and number of issues. But bankers say they feel like with good stories to tell, institutional investors can get excited. And, and you know, they're risk averse, right, Contessa? I mean, they want to see profitability or a very clear path to profitability. One of those IPOs you just mentioned only just turned profitable within the last six months, you know, first half of 2023 after sustaining a loss for years. So they want to see at a minimum that and at a maximum, years of profitability, they want to see a growth story. You know, one interesting thing in the pipeline that came up in conversation today was Birkenstock, uh, which is going to go public possibly as early as next week. And that's a very storied company that has a lot of, you know, brand appeal and is well known. And they've expanded in recent years. They've expanded their footprint. They've expanded, <laughs> pun intended, uh. they've expanded into new types of products. And they've gotten very popular. And that's the kind of story that bankers think and hope 
that institutional investors can get excited about. And also Kava, Apogee Therapeutics, which is a pharmaceuticals company. It's not that all of the IPOs are losing steam, uh, but do, are you get reading into this and the bankers you're talking to, are, do they see something about the health of the IPO market from the, the Clavios, the, the arms of the world? Yeah, I mean, they're taking encouragement from that. I mean, you're you're quite right to point out, Contessa, that, you know, these guys, these not guys, but these issues are not doing super well in the aftermarket. But what you want to see, I mean, we all get excited, you know, investors and, and the media get excited about like a large first day pop because it's interesting and it shows the enthusiasm. The reality is the conventional wisdom is you actually want your stock to go up something like 10, 12, maybe 15 percent from the offer price so that the original investors that are trying to offload their shares can make some money in the aftermarket, but it's not such a big rise percentage-wise that it, that the issuers, the company, feel like they left money on the table, right? So in a way, that 40, 80, 100% rise of yesteryear is like not a healthy sign. It means that the bankers didn't do their jobs very well. So of course, it would be nice to yeah. see these names trading, you know, multiple percentage points or 10 percentage points above their offer price, but it's actually not a terrible thing that they're trading in line for the overall health of the market. I think what disturbs these underwriters and probably also the institutional investors is this market's just a little unpredictable. I mean, yes, sure we're is. up on the year for sure, but we're down from the highs this year. Uh, there are these rotations, so gyrations in the market that can be hard to predict. So there are a lot of things, you know, potentially working against the success of these offerings. And still so much excitement when they happen. Uh, Kate, I would just want to say we did not have a memo about the white on black outfit, but it's working for us. We'll go with it. Thank you for your time. Let's get Thank to quicker you. than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Utah crowned happiest state in America by WalletHub. It's one of the fastest growing states in the country, boasts the highest volunteer rate and lowest separation and divorce rate. And the Utah desert is about to get a special delivery from a NASA spacecraft. It will deliver a cup full of asteroid rubble, or about half a pound, to help us learn more about the origins of the universe. That's the successful conclusion of a seven-year, $1 billion mission. Senator John Fetterman promising to wear a suit on the Senate floor if his colleagues in the House avoid a shutdown. He used more colorful language that I refrain from repeating on TV. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had changed the dress code recently from business to casual dress on the floor, which was probably a welcome relief to Fetterman, who seems to prefer a hoodie and shorts. Get them while they're hot. McDonald's bringing back its spicy chicken nuggets for a limited time. Don't call them porta potties. Fairfax, Virginia adding public restrooms as part of a pilot program, and these are thrones in city parks are solar powered, which may be overkill when all you need is a place to pee. Can you say that on TV? I think I just did. Coming up, will Detroit's big three eat Tesla's dust thanks to the UAW strike? It's a heavyweight debate between Dan Ives and Gordon Johnson. We're all waiting for with bated breath for this one. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Last Call. There is a fresh call out tonight from Wedbush's Dan Ives, this time surrounding the UAW strike. Ives says that the battle is between the union and Detroit's big three automakers. Neither party is poised to come out on top. Instead, some foreign automakers and Tesla will be the real winners. Since the strike began, shares of Elon Musk's company, though, have dropped 7 percent. 
So is Tesla really gearing up to reap the spoils of this fight? Let's take it to the panel. With us tonight, Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives, longtime Tesla bull, and GLJ Research founder and CEO Gordon Johnson, longtime Tesla bear. It's nice to see both of you here on Last Call. Dan, let me kick it off to you. All right. First of all, you argued with me recently that you uh, truly believe Tesla is a tech company. If it's a tech company, explain (laughs) why it would benefit from an auto worker strike. Yeah, and Contessa, it's really here. It's all about competition in electric vehicles. And I've continued to view, and obviously Gordon's disagreed, Tesla is not an auto company, it's disruptive technology. And if you look right now at competition, GM and Ford, that was the biggest shadow in terms of for Tesla. This auto strike, in terms of what it's going to do from a cost intake perspective and or delay EV in terms of production, ultimately the plan for Detroit in 2024, I think it's, a, it's almost a moment. It's a champagne on ice in terms of what's happening at Tesla. The competition now really, I believe, barks a lot worse than the bite in terms of this UAW debacle that's happened 313. Do you think it ma- that, that stands to reason even if the strike is short-lived? Look, I think ultimately it's how it's settled. If, if it's a 40% cost intake and in terms of you know, some of the pension and other things they proposed, I think this really puts the business models at risk. And I think for Tesla, non-union stands, this is ultimately for them. They're watching this debacle from their view, and I think competition-wise, this was the biggest risk. And I, I'm always interested to hear what Gordon says in terms of what okay. we are going to see come out of Detroit. All right, well, let's hear what Gordon says. Gordon, what do you say? So I think anyone that says this is a boon for Tesla shows a gross misunderstanding of the auto market and also why people are um, uh, 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 basically striking. Let me explain. So right now, there's, I'm going to read from my notes, there's 2.01 million cars and inventory. That's cars and inventory in the U.S. That is the highest level of inventory since April of 2021, or just under 2.5 years, at 43 days of inventory. The point is, there is a ton of auto inventory in the market, meaning we have 43 days of inventories for this, this to get resolved. So the idea that this is going to uh, cause a shortage of cars, we think is misplaced. One other thing, keep in mind, um, uh, if you look at the, um, the, the proxy statements, from Tesla, Ford, and GM, the 2022 proxy statements. On average, a worker at Tesla makes $34,000 a year. A worker at Ford makes $75,000, and a worker at GM makes $80,000. The point being, Tesla workers are grossly underpaid even before there's a resolution for this, uh, this strike. Meaning, who is next? The White House and the UAW is likely coming after Tesla next, Given via their financial, their their leaks, their their workers are grossly underpaid. One last thing, over the past, so since April 2016, the the, the price of cars, average price of a car in the U.S. is up 36 percent. Why? Because automakers are shifting their business to selling trucks, producing less, selling higher ASP cars. For- the point is, even if there was no strike, prices were going to go up anyways. So the idea that this is going to hurt Ford or hurt GM. Keep in mind, BMW, all these other guys aren't striking. 
But the idea that this is going to hurt them, given prices have been up so much, I just think is a misunderstanding of the auto market by the tech I, I want to set the scene for those people who are listening on the radio right now. Dan Ives is listening to this and shaking his head back and forth through the whole thing. Why? Why do you disagree with that, Dan? Because there's a better chance of me playing in the NFL than unions ultimately happening at Tesla. And I think that's ultimately how they've always built it. And now you have Detroit one hand tied behind their back. And I think Gordon, you know, ultimately, if you look right now, GM and Ford, what was going to be a risk from an electric vehicle perspective, I think now it just becomes noise depending on how this deal gets done. Okay, what about Barron's that says, you know who you should watch other than Tesla? What about Toyota, which, by the way, I got an e- a marketing email from Toyota today touting their hybrid Highlander. I was wondering about the timing of that and also uh, Volkswagen. What do you think, Gordon? What, do you think that these two companies stand a better chance than Tesla does? I, I do, but I just want to correct something Dan <laughs> said. The EV plants for these three companies that are striking, the, the EV plants are still operating. So I don't think you fully understand what's going on here. Now, with respect to Toyota, you have Toyota, you have BMW, you have Mercedes, you have Hyundai, you have Honda. None of these foreign plants are striking. So the idea that Tesla is going to be the only beneficiary, I, I, I think is just cherry picking. I hate to use that word, but cherry picking. And again, Dan, if you work at Tesla's plant via their 2022 proxy statement and you make an average of $34,000 a year and you're seeing your buddies across the street at Ford are about to get a raise to $150,000 a year, to assume you're just going to sit still and do nothing, I think is aggressive. <laughs> I mean, I, look, I would just say there, they are in a position of weakness right now. And ultimately, it's, to the, it's the automakers, especially farm ones. But Tesla, they are going to be the biggest winner in this debacle we're seeing in Detroit. And but how do you say that when we have 43 days of inventory, right? I just told you that prices are up 36% since April of 2016. Prices for automotive car, prices for cars have been going up for a long time. They're going to keep going up. Because the automotive industry is shifting to large trucks and they're shipping to less production, higher prices. Tesla's prices are down 40% over the past year, according to car gurus, versus 6% for the rest of the auto industry. What that means is Tesla has a demand problem they're trying to mask by dropping prices. That's how you go bankrupt as an auto company. But that, but that continues to be Gordon's view, the demand problem. And ultimately, no, no, no. quarter and quarter, they've proved it wrong yet again. Gentlemen. That does it for this discussion on Last Call. You know, Mills Lane, I worked with him my first TV job, famous <laughs> boxing referee. I could get in there and just ring a bell. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Contessa. That does it for Last Call tonight. Brian Sullivan is back tomorrow, and Shark Tank is up next. Hope you have a fantastic Thursday night. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.